We're in the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. Let's stand and read this text together, and then we'll, we'll study. We'll look at it, and hopefully the Lord will be kind to us. But let's look at Matthew eleven twenty through 30. And if you don't have a Bible, you can look underneath there and grab one of those and, and take it with you. Or if you have one and you know someone that needs one, then please take that with you and, and give it to them. Uh, let's read it. Matthew 11, starting at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in, in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and of earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for this time as we examine this text and really kind of look at the big pictures of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty and see this amazing gospel invitation. That we wouldn't come to familiar texts like this invitation in 28 through 30 and kind of breeze past that. As if this is something that we're familiar with, that we've kind of gotten over and moved past. But Lord, the sweetness of the gospel, the beauty of it, the amazing message that we have been forgiven. That we have seen a mighty work in our midst would amaze us and lead us to great worship. Be with me now, God. I pray for your, your help. I need it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, last week, we looked at kind of 1 through 19, and we looked at a doubter. The, the big kind of idea for chapters 11 and 12 is, is doubt and denial. And so last week, we looked at the doubter. The, the disciples of John came doubting, and we, we discussed some of those things about how Jesus talked um, had some words for John, he had some words about John, and then he had some words for the crowd that was there. You can see in verse 16 it says, um, this generation, there was a crowd that had gathered around him, and he had some words for them. And so that was kind of the, the words for the doubters, and even some that were in denial. And so we've, we've moved now, and, and really for most of the uh, rest of this series, chapters 11 and 12, we're going to be looking at a lot of the deniers. And so, uh, as we're looking at this particular text... Uh, which is 20 through 30, there's, there's something I kind of need to throw out there, which is um, with the exception, I think, of the very end, most of everything I'm going to say here to you is stuff you've heard. 
very, very little of it is actually uh, new information. Um, and so since that's the case, uh, I think that the best thing that we can do is, is that we can say, God, since some of this information I'm going to hear will be review, uh, but since it's your word and it never returns void, I ask, like all of us need to ask, including myself, as I hear and see some amazing truths that, not, not because I said them, but because God said them, that these truths would be something that um, hit me in such a way that I'm moved by them again, that I'm amazed by you again. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this. Um, uh, we preach through books of the Bible here. We're in Matthew. We've been in it for over a year, and we preach through other books of the Bible verse by verse. And as you preach verse by verse, you get to go over topics that naturally I would want to not go over. I, I like to be liked. I like for people to like me. I'm a people pleaser in some ways, um, but uh, not to the point where I won't teach through things. And so here we get to this and really, 20 through 24, we get to this big category of man's responsibility to sin um, and, and that they have sinned. And then we have this other side in 25 through 30 that really highlights the sovereignty of God. And you even see words there like verse 27 where it says, the son chooses to reveal. So you have this, this choosing and electing of God where you start talking too much about this. Um, you know, people, people don't like it. And so uh, I kind of... And mixed in with all this going on where this, some of this is review and some of this is information that maybe we don't like. Um, and, and I'm a people pleaser. And so I'm praying and I've been praying that I wouldn't um, take away anything that the word's not saying. That I would be as faithful as possible. But in all that, we would all not rebel against anything we don't like. But that we would will, graciously in, embrace the truths of the scriptures that we're going to see here. Now, um, we're going to start in, in 20. And as these uh, 20 through 24 and 25 through 30, they're, they're kind of broken out into two uh, things for us in the Bible. They're really kind of broken out for us into in two things today. So this is how I want you to think in categories with me. The first section, which is 20 through 24, we're going to see uh, unbelief. Uh, he, he's, he's pronouncing woes upon three cities and comparing them to another three cities. So that, that 20 through 24 is really the kind of big category of unbelief and the condemnation that goes on those cities for their unbelief. And then the, the others, if that's unbelief and the condemnation because of it, 20 through tw- 25 through 30 is kind of the other side of that, which is the great invitation that's being accept, uh, extended to people and those whom are accepted. So that's, that's kind of the, the way it breaks out for us and kind of big ideas, the condemned versus the accepted, man's uh, responsibility versus God's sovereignty. And so that's, that's what we're going to be looking at today. So let's, let's look at uh, 20, and I want us to really grasp 20. It's going to help us have a, a huge point in 20 that really serves us for the rest of the time. So let's, let's look at 20. And it says, then he began to denounce. Now, this word denounce is a, a, a very strong verb. This is con- conveying great indignation towards people. Very strong. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, where most of his mighty works have been done. And it says, because they did not repent. I've got four children and my oldest for Christmas, we bought a magician set. 
And so, you know, when she got it, she you know, has like 40 ma- magic things in there. So she gets it, the DVD, she runs upstairs and she watches. She's just like this. So she has to do it right away. She runs up there and she watches the DVD for a while. She's, she's learning her sleight of hand. This is Christmas Day. And so she comes back down and she sets up her display and she starts doing her, her, her magic, you know, for a seven-year-old. And so we all just appropriately, oh, wow, how did you do that? You're, you're the most amazing magician ever. You are going to be a professional magician one day. You're just amazing. These these mighty works you're doing in front of us, JC, you're just you're amazing. And I think what happens is um, that that idea that mighty works happen, our appropriate response is, whoa, amazing. And, And while that is appropriate, I think that we kind of import that. And even the hearts of the people in the first century, they think that that's their appropriate response. Jesus, here's a guy who's dead. Here's a guy who's alive. Whoa, that's amazing. Jesus rose somebody like amazing. And oh, that guy can't see. Now he can see. Whoa, you're amazing, Jesus. And Jesus is amazing. Did everybody see how awesome Jesus is? Now, this is a good response. This is appropriate, but it's nowhere near sufficient. Don't miss the point of verse 20. All these amazing things that are happening, these, um, these mighty works are not for the point of us just to be oohed and odd and say, huh, wow, you're just amazing. There's a deeper thing that's supposed to happen in our hearts when we see mighty works. Look what he says. He began to announce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Mighty works are done to amaze us. But the reason why mighty works are done are not just for our amazement, not for us just to say ooh and ah, but to as we see this amazing grandeur of God and the the hugeness of him, we reflect upon ourselves and just how small we are and how much of a sinner we are. And as we see that, it's not supposed to just say, wow, you're big, but also I am small and a sinner. I repent from my sin. The reason why God does mighty works in front of them and in front of us is always to lead to repentance, to lead us to repentance. And so as we see that, there's a real plea, there's a real response that is appropriate and and absolutely called upon by God, by these people. They are to repent. This is their responsibility in light of what they've seen. So this is highlighting for us, as I said, man's responsibility This section highlights man's responsibility and God's telling us through Christ that there is a real response necessary. There's a real response necessary. Um, Spurgeon, as he's talking about this response of repentance and view of mighty work, says the more men hear and see of the Lord's work, the greater is their obligation to repent. How many great works have you done and what have been what has been your response? Amazement. That's good. Repentance, further repentance, as you see amazing things happen in your life. Amazing things happen in the Bible belt. It's always supposed to lead us to repentance, not just mere amazement. Um, And so here's the deal. It's done. The mighty works like Jesus is physically in front of them doing them. I've never experienced that, like physically never seen Jesus. He's physically doing it in front of them. And it didn't bring repentance. That's amazingly hard hearted. 
Now look at this. We're going to look at these woes now that's pronounced on them. And there's there's three cities that are pronounced woes upon and then three cities that are compared to. You can see the three cities that are pronounced woes. Woe to you, Chorazin. Or actually in the Greek it's Chorazin. But I'm going to spare you that again. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. And then you can see right down there in 23, woe to you, Capernaum. So these are the three cities that have seen amazing, mighty works. And then he says, you three cities, if you... Um, If I had done those same things in Tyre and Sidon or in Sodom, they would have repented. But you didn't. You didn't repent. Um, It says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. um, If you're not familiar with the sackcloth and ashes, this is just um, sackcloth is kind of short uh, hairs of camels that are worn close to your skin in order to express grief or sorrow. Some of you might be doing that. I don't know. You might have the corner market on camel hair and have it underneath your, your clothes. But more than likely, you're, you don't have those kind of categories of thought. And ashes is just the symbol of death. So you put ashes all over yourself. I don't see anybody with ashes on themselves. But this is the idea that whenever you repent, um, whenever you're in the midst of repentance, you, you put on sackcloth and ashes. And so we can see that there's a, a clear indication that there should be repentance, even maybe outward forms. Sackcloth and ashes of repentance that are that are to be happening. And so then, um, well, to start off, he, he compares Chorazin and Bethsaida with Tyre and Sidon. Now, these four cities are all contemporary cities of one another in first century. Bethsaida and Chorazin, Tyre and Sidon. But then he goes down to the next set of comparison, one city to the next. And I think this one is where he still really drives his point home. He goes to Capernaum and compares them to Sodom. Sodom was not a contemporary city of Capernaum. Jesus, if you remember, and all of us I know are just ideal readers as we've been studying through Matthew. So we can all remember back in 413. I didn't remember either. But um, in 413, uh, it, it tells us in chapter 413 that Capernaum was the the home base of Jesus. As he began his public ministry, he, he said, I'm going to start my public ministry and my home base, hometown, central place where I'm going to launch out and go do ministry, but I always come back to is Capernaum. It's my home base. And so he looks at Capernaum. I mean, they have seen amazing things done in their midst. And he looks at them and he says, Capernaum, um, if you had been like Sodom, and, and points them over to Sodom, a, a city that lived back in Genesis and had been destroyed, and tells them, if it, if it had been like Sodom, if you had been like Sodom, they would have repented. In other words, it's kind of like saying, um, Bible Belt, you have seen amazing things in your midst. Just unbelievably works of God. You've got the gospel preached all over your city. You've got churches everywhere. You have ministry set up. There's amazing mighty works all over you, Bible Belt. And yet you won't repent. If I had done all these amazing things over in Sin City, Vegas, like they would have immediately have repented. But not you. Not you. They would have. The, the, the sinners, the crazy sinners, immediately would have repented. But Capernaum... I've done these things and you haven't. As a matter of fact, he even says, will you be brought? <clears throat> he, he asks, will you be exalted to heaven? He looks at Capernaum with really, really direct language. Will you be exalted to heaven, Capernaum? And then he says, no, you will be brought down to Hades. In other words, he's telling this, sit, this particular city that they will be going to hell. Because they are so hard hearted. Now, as we're comparing it to the Bible Belt, I'm not saying that everybody in the Bible Belt's going to hell. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying 
we get to see amazing things. And if our heart becomes as hard as Capernaum, when we see these amazing things in our life, and yet we remain unrepentant, then that will be our future for those that don't know Christ. And then he says, for if the mighty works have been done in Sodom. Now, even more so, Capernaum, who is well acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures, these were people who are Jewish, they hear this, and certainly it kind of cuts them deeper to the heart. Wow. Sodom would have repented and not us? I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty deep. And so he's telling them, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, their utter need to repent. Now, as we, as we hear this, we kind of hear about their responsibility and, and they, their need to see these, as they see these mighty works repent. I think there's a couple things that kind of jump off the question form, jump off the page for me. Really a couple questions. Um, the first one is, um, why wouldn't Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, why wouldn't they repent if they saw physically the amazing things of God, but seemingly were just so indifferent to it. They saw the face of Jesus perform miracles and are just indifferent. How is that possible? It's because their heart had become so hard to seeing amazing things of God. They were so hard hearted that they kind of got over Jesus. I think we can see some great applications of danger for us right now. Have you found yourself at the point where you've just gotten over at the amazing work of the gospel in your life and just kind of become hard hearted to the amazing works that the mighty works that he's done in your life and wants to do? We don't want that to happen. Now, here's kind of a, a second question that hops off the page. And this is a this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but I think. There's some there's some meat to it. There's I think there's something to it. Here's my question. All right. If Tyre and Sidon and Sodom would have repented had they seen those things. Then why did those things not happen? Why would you reveal yourself to Chorazin, Bethsaida and Capernaum knowing that they are going to say no, but not reveal yourself to Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, um, knowing that if they had seen these mighty works, they would have come. That, why not? Um, we're going to get uh, an answer for that. Um, but I think we could spend like days there. But in the end, I think this is this is where we can kind of come to a conclusion on that. And we're going to Jesus is going to give us an answer for that in verses 25 and 26. Don't look. I know everybody looked. Don't look. I'm going to get to it. Everybody, what is it then? I don't want to hear any, what you're going to say. We're going to get to it. But here's what I want you to hear. All right. Here's what I want you to hear. Um, in the end, we don't know why he chooses to reveal to some and keep himself concealed from others. We don't know because we're not God. We're not God why he does it. He's going to give us somewhat of an answer in 25 and 26. But here's something we all need to remember. God does not owe salvation to anyone. God only owes justice to everyone. That's what he owes us all. So those whom receive mercy, those whom receive salvation, we should never find ourselves 
unmoved by the great work of God in our own life and in our city, that we become hard hearted, that we don't have our feet and our heart and our hands and our mouth going out as acts of worship to the people around us, calling them to repent. We should never let our city and our friends and our family um, suffer the torments of hell that's promised to Sodom. Instead, we should be moved to compassion for them to go out and say, great mighty works of God are around us. Look on. And as this verse right here, 20 says, repent because of it. I care so much about you. I want to repent. I want to continually find the gospel amazing in the mighty works of God. And I want you to see these things with me. Let's be astounded together and repent together because only he's worthy. Now, no one is, wor- is worthy of salvation. We're all worthy of justice. But Jesus is going to give us a little bit of an answer to the question of why some are revealed and some, are con- and, and some stay concealed. But before we move into it, I want to... Um, I want to read a quote from Spurgeon because he's he's moving. Jesus is moving from the the condemned, the, the, the pronouncement of woes to all six cities. And 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 just so you remember, um, the sad truth is all six cities are going to be punished. All six cities are still going to be punished. There seems to be maybe. And I don't understand this fully, a, a lighter degree of torment for some three that didn't have the knowledge of the other three. But that doesn't, I don't know that that matters. I think that for us who have met Christ, that's supposed to wake us up to deep compassion for them. Now he's moving from the, from the condemned and the pronouncement of woes into the accepted and a crazy awesome gospel invitation starting at 28. But as he's doing it, Spurgeon says in these moments, as Jesus was teaching on judgment and he begins to transition into the teaching to the invitation for broken sinners, the heaviness of those who are um, condemned begins to lift off and his brow begins to clear as he starts telling us of the amazing grace that he extends to sinners. He's moving from condemned to accepted. And you can see, as Spurgeon says, um, the, the weight begin to come off and the amazing brow of his kind of lifting as he speaks with enjoyment of this awesome invitation that he's given to us. So as we're moving into this next section, 25 through 30, I want you to kind of see it. There's kind of a three little part to it. I want you to we're going to broadly talk about those three parts and then and then take them one at a time. And 25 and 26, you're going to see Jesus um, start speaking straight to the God, the father. Right there, he says, and at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. So in 25 and 26, he kind of ends the conversation with them for a second. And he just starts talking to God, the Father. God, I thank you. And just starts talking to them in 25, 26. And then in 25 and 26, after that, he talks to God. He moves back over and starts addressing. That's the first kind of part. In 27 is the second part. He starts addressing them again. And in 27, he starts highlighting um, for the people the divine authority that he's completely aware of. I am completely aware of the divine authority that has been given from the Father to me in 27. And then in 28 through 30, based on the fact that he's thanked God and he understands his divine authority, his God-given authority to be the one who sends out the gospel or the invitation, he extends the invitation in 28 through 30. He just, oh man, extends it out. And we're going to get to that in a second. The beauty of that, that gospel invitation. But let's kind of take these part by part. In 25, it says, at that time, 
Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. Spurgeon says, as I thank you, Father, this is the only right way to start addressing God and thinking about God when he starts talking about his electing of the saints. And he says, at that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have, listen, hidden these things from the wise and understanding. These things is the gospel, the message of the kingdom. And he's saying, I thank you, God, that you have hidden the gospel from the wise and understanding. That's interesting language. That's really interesting. And then he says, and revealed it. Now, he's kind of talking about those cities. He's, he's, he's answering that question. Why is it that some are revealed and some are concealed? Jesus says, I thank you that you've done that. Well, Okay. And then he says, and revealed to... Now, we think if he's, if he's hiding it from wise and understanding, we think he's going to reveal it to the simple-minded. But that's not what he says. He actually says, and revealed it to little children. Still addressing us, reminding us that we are all in the family of God and his children. And then he says right after that, And revealed it to little children. Yes, Father, for such... And here's your answer. If you're wanting to know why revealed and why concealed to some and others, here it is. Yes, Father, for it was your gracious will. Some of your translations will say good pleasure. It's the good pleasure. It's the gracious will of the Father that he would choose to reveal himself to some and conceal himself to others. I don't know why. Besides, it's the gracious will of the Father. But what I do know is that those who have heard the gospel, we are all completely under obligation. We are responsible for what verse 20 says. Repentance. And that's, that's what we can land on. That's, that's where we have. That's what we are. So he says, it's your gracious will. Now we're going to go into, after he kind of addresses praise, when he says, I thank you, Father, that word thank can also be translated praise. So I praise you or I thank you, Father, for this. And based on this kind of prayer that you have explained to us some, he goes into 27. And 27, um, one of my commentators that I was reading this week said, 27 is one of the biggest verses in the book of Matthew. Everything... Um, so far has been leading up to 1127 and, and everything kind of kind of hinges in that centerpiece of 1127. And then after that, after 1127, everything kind of builds on 1127 for the rest of the book. <laughs> That's pretty loaded. Then what's the big deal? Let's let's look at it um, now as we read it, because the last thing you're going to hear is going to be the word choosing. You're all going to go one, one place. Let's let's hear it. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son. And to anyone. So the only people that know the father are anyone whom the son chooses to reveal. So when we hear that, we're automatically going, Jesus chooses. This is all about choosing. And the second section um, in this in this little section is not verse 27. is not so much about Jesus choosing. It's not so much about election. It, it does talk about that. But I don't want you to miss if you just hear that last thing and think that's what it's about. All you're going to hear is Jesus chooses. And that's not the point. The point above is Jesus chooses. It's all about Jesus. Look what he says. All things have been handed over to me by my father. This is amazing authority that Jesus is declaring here. All things have been handed over from the father to me. So the point of 27 is not Jesus chooses. It's Jesus chooses. Like it's all about him. He's 
completely acknowledging his divine authority now that he is the one who has been given the authority to extend salvation. And so as we look at the rest of Matthew, he is the one who is going to be extending out salvation to people. It's all hinging on the fact that Jesus is now the authority of salvation. And look what he says. All things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son. This is placing an enormous emphasis on Jesus's person and his authority and just kind of a um, something that jumps out. This is kind of for free here. Uh, you'll notice that Jesus starts referring to himself in the third person. If I came out and said, Fud's going to preach to you, you're going to be like, who's Fud? Like, aren't you Fud? Why? You? He's kind of doing that when he says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. And he says, no one knows the Son. He's talking about himself. No one knows the Son except for the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. You're talking about yourself, right? <laughs> yeah, he is. And the point is, like, if you remember back in 317 at the baptism, we hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my Son. And so just so as we're reading through the book of Matthew, we're hearing loud and clear from Matthew that the son that was referenced at the baptism is Jesus. And Jesus is the son who is now receiving all authority. Jesus is the one who is able, as we get into 28 through 30, extend this amazing gospel invitation. And 28 through 30 is an absolutely amazing gospel invitation. Jesus, Jesus chooses. Now we're going to get into 28 through 30. And as we get into this gospel invitation in 28 through 30, there's, there's a couple parts. And I'm going, to, I'm going to take this first one. And it's, the first one's all in 28. And I'm going to highlight different words of 28. We're going to kind of bounce back around in 28 because I want you to hear all the things. Now, again, don't miss this. All the way through 28... All the information I'm giving you, if you spend any time in church, should be things you've heard. And hopefully, as we're hearing them again, you're asking God, amaze me by these truths. I'm thinking that 29 and 30 are going to be extremely helpful. Extremely. But let's look at 28. This is the gracious invitation of the gospel. And Spurgeon says, in which the Savior's tears and smiles are being blended. I love that. Like, there's... there's angst and compassion and desire that when you hear this, you would respond. He's he's mixing in tears and smiles, knowing that he is worthy to extend salvation. He is worthy to receive the praise and he desperately wants you to respond. Tears and smiles are being blended here. And he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all. Let's jump on that word all for a second. Now, D.A. Carson, genius, has a little saying, and it's pretty, pretty helpful, I think. When we hear the word all, it's, it's, it's sometimes we can take that word up and we can throw it up on the billboard, and we can say, come to me all. And, we can, and he says this, <laughs> a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. I know that's kind of like, what are you saying? And he says, a verse, if you throw it up on there and don't look at all the other things around it, can, be, can begin to have um, a kind of its own little theology that you build with it, a, an understanding of doctrine that you build with it without looking at everything else. You need to look at everything else whenever you look at this. So when you hear, come to me all, don't forget, right there in the very last part of 27, he's saying... I'm going to choose to reveal myself to some, conceal myself to others. So the ones I'm choosing to reveal, I'm telling all of you to come. Just simple little hermeneutics, but don't, for, don't miss that. And he says, come to all, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. Who labor 
and are heavy laden. Now, the next thing I want us to hear is Jesus is saying, come to me. Come to me. Big emphasis here on this word me. An invitation is being extended out to all those who don't know Jesus. And he's saying, trust me personally. Based on what I just told you in 27. All the authority has been handed over by the Father to me. When you come to God, you come to me. Don't go to the wise and learned that I talked about. Don't go to the cities that I pronounce woe on. Don't go to this generation where I look at them and I say, what am I going to do? How can I even compare you? Don't go to those people. Come to me. That's the message of Christ where he says, come to me. And then he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. Who labor and are heavy laden. And so understanding what this labor and heavy laden means. We need to understand what it meant to those hearers in the first century. Whatever it means in the first century is what it means to us. And what it means in the first century is. He's referring to all the people that had been oppressed by this burden of religious legalism that the scribes and Pharisees had put on them. The scribes and Pharisees were the religious leaders at the time. And they would say, you want to know God? Follow these laws. You want to know God? Follow these laws and these. And just keep following all these laws. Keep the rules. And they were just oppressing the people. And oppressing the people. And they felt, as Jesus says, that this is laborious. This is causing me to labor. Labor. I'm heavy laden. This is a lot. And Jesus is saying, come to me. Everyone who feels like they're laboring, everyone who feels heavy laden, come to me. Now, in Matthew 23, which we're going to get there hopefully in about three years, um, we're going to see a verse. I'm kidding, kind of. Um, In verse 23, 4, it says, um, Jesus is pronouncing woes upon those actual Pharisees in 23, 4. And this is what he said. This is very familiar language, um, um, very uh, same kind of language that we hear here. It says, They, talking about the Pharisees, tie heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And so Jesus is saying, come to me all who are labor and are heavy laden. Now, I want you to understand one thing about labor and heavy laden. Because in the context of the first century, it means those who are being oppressed by rules to know God. And it means the same thing for us today. It does not mean this. It doesn't mean the people who are tired in life. You're just kind of tired. You know, you work a lot. You work 60 hours. Your children are crazy. Um, That's not what it means. Now, if those things are causing you to sin, (laughs) and children can do that, and that sin weighs you down because you feel like you're not performing for Jesus, I need to perform to you to know you, and you're basing it on your performance, then you're starting to understand it. But this... this, um, This verse where it says uh, labor and are heavy laden, it doesn't mean the tired in life. It means the people that are absolutely aware of their sin and it's on their shoulders so deeply. They're burdened by their sin and they need to get out from under it. Jesus. All right. Here's the first one. Here's as we're looking at that invitation. Here's the first thing in the invitation. Jesus looks at him and says, come. Come. There's no other thing you need to do right now. You need to come. You don't need to wait. You don't need to put it off. You don't have anything to do. You, you come right now. Just like the, in Luke 15, whenever the prodigal son gets up, he comes. He goes immediately. You come. 
And so this first half of this, this amazing gospel invitation, which is being shown in 28, Jesus is looking at him and saying, come. And what happens when you come? He says, come, I will give you rest. This is final, decisive rest. This is, in the theological words, justification. This is the declaration of God for, for whenever you put your faith in Jesus, when he says, you are completely forgiven. Come right now, put your faith in me, trust in my work on the cross for you on your behalf, and I will give you final, decisive rest right now. And it's given to us through his death on the cross and his resurrection, and it's grasped by us by faith, by trusting him. So this is the first half of this amazing gospel invitation. And it's the simple message that you've heard if you've spent any time in church where he says, come. And I think in the Bible Belt especially, that's where the message kind of ends. And this amazing gospel invitation, kind of 29 and 30 are left off. I had a friend that called me yesterday who's having... A real crisis of faith. I mean, a real crisis of faith. And he understands everything. I, he's a very smart guy. Understands everything I just said. Completely understands that he's, he's righteous before God. Knows that there's nothing that's going to change that. Once saved, always saved. I'm justified. I'm completely holy in God's eyes. I got that down. There is no therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I've got Romans 8.1. I got it all down. But what happens is he's struggling. And here, as I've said, all the way through 28, I think is very helpful for every single one of us. But 29 and 30, I think will be very, our review for all of us. As we're getting to 29 and 30, I think this is going to be something that might, if the Lord wills, almost be revolutionary for you. If you are a believer and you find yourself struggling through this through this walk of sanctification, this walk of now that you're a Christian, how does this work? I wake up, I don't feel affections, I don't understand, I don't want to read my Bible, I find it an arduous task to have to pray, and I don't even know how, and, and I don't know what it means to be a, a follower of Jesus, and all this seems hard. It's because perhaps you've understood that first half of the gospel invitation and not understood the second half. The first half is come, but notice the second half, it's take. If you just want to use one little word, take the promise is the same. The promise is the same. Come, I will give you rest. Take, you will find rest. You see that in 29, you will find rest. The promise is the same, but there's a little bit of different kind of rest we're talking about. The come rest is final, decisive, eternal rest. This other rest is also rest for today. So let's understand and unpack this take a little bit. Look what he says. Take my yoke upon you. We we don't need to breeze by that. That's pretty huge. Because, you know, most people, whenever they hear the gospel, when they hear the good news, they hear salvation, they say, Jesus is going to take all your sin. Everything's going to be taken off of you. All of it's finally going to be gone. All the guilt and shame gone. And he gives you righteousness. And so you hear that. You're like, okay, everything's gone then. But then look at this. You, You can't just breeze through where it says, Jesus says, take my yoke Upon you. Now, yoke, if we're not familiar with that, we just think, is Jesus talking about eggs? Like, what's, what, what's he talking about right here? Yoke is this. Um, 
It's a wooden frame where two animals were kind of connected by this yoke. They were, and it was designed for pulling heavy loads. And so he's saying, take my yoke. All that sin and shame has been taken off. But at the same time, in this huge gospel invitation I'm extended, I'm telling you, I have a yoke that I want to put on you now. And you have to take this yoke upon yourself. This is the second half of this great gospel invitation. And so if the first part is come, be justified, be declared completely righteous, and you're going to um, get this by faith, the second half is Take the yoke, put it upon you, find yourself becoming more Christ-like, sanctified, holy, however you want to say it. Um, and this is done by copying the life. This one is by faith and the other one is by pursuing Christ with everything you had to, to nutshell it. The first come is grasped by faith. The second take is grasped by obedience. God is saying, you still have to obey. I'm putting a yoke upon you. Now, we're automatically are sounding off about legalism. Like, okay, I thought you just said, uh, you know, he's, he's scolding the legalists for putting all kinds of stuff on him. And now Jesus say, do what I'm saying, follow these things. And I don't want you to miss this. It's always based on the fact that you've been declared righteous. And out of that, you desire obedience. It's not obey these things in order to be for, um, accepted. It's you are accepted. Therefore, now obey. It's always that way. Now, I don't want you to miss this because this is pretty amazing. We, we ask ourselves, take my yoke upon you. What does take my yoke upon you mean? Can you, can you give me a little bit better description of that, of what it means? And he does right in the very next phrase. When he tells us to take my yoke upon you or become my disciple, he says this. Learn from me. Learn from me. This is Jesus in this take is asking you not just to come and be saved, but to also take and take up the um, discipleship that's supposed to happen. You are now to be a disciple means literally back then. If Jesus says, follow me, you're his disciple. Okay, where are we going? I'm going to follow you around. Are we going to sleep here tonight? Well, this is where I'm putting up because I'm your disciple. Wherever you go, I go. You're telling me to do that. I'm going to go do that. That's what a disciple was. In 2000 years ago, a disciple was someone who literally, literally followed them around wherever they went. We're sleeping here tonight. I'm sleeping here tonight. I am your disciple. You tell me what to do. I go where you go. And this is where Jesus is saying, take my yoke. I'm inviting you into discipleship. And when he says, learn from me, this is pretty amazing. This word from in the Greek is apo, apo. And apo can either be translated from or of either way. So he's saying, learn from me. I'm the teacher. Learn of me. I am the lesson. I'm the teacher and the lesson. I'm the one who's going to instruct you. But all, what you need to learn about is also me. Learn from me. Learn of me. What does it mean to take my yoke upon you? It means to attach yourself to Jesus. And everything is going to be about Jesus. He's going to teach you. And he's also the object of the lesson. God is the gospel. Jesus is the point of your salvation. You are going to, um, with everything you have, do everything you can to make everything about Jesus. You're going to learn from him. He is the teacher and the lesson. That's what we're meaning when we hear him say, um, take my yoke upon me and learn from me. We're going to enter into the school of Jesus, sit at his feet, as it were, be his disciple. He is both teacher and the lesson. And amazingly enough, as we kind of 
compare the Pharisees who put all these rules on them and they find it burdensome. Jesus is saying, you want to do this because I'm not like the Pharisees who make it horrible for you. I'm actually gentle and lowly in heart. I'm more humble than you can imagine. Come and learn from me because I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. And then he promises the same thing. For you will find rest for your souls. That you will find rest for your souls is a quote, a direct quote from Jeremiah 6.16. Where it's pointing back to the rest that's being promised to us in the Old Testament. And he's saying you will find rest for your souls. And then he says, for my yoke is easy. Attaching yourself to me is easy and my burden is light. Because you've already come. You've already been declared righteous and now you're entering into discipleship. You're entering into following Jesus. Now, interestingly enough, this is kind of a, 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 an idea into next week. As Jesus has been promising rest, both eternal and now, we're going to go into 12.1 and following where they don't get it. And they're all of a sudden arguing about Sabbath rest. So 28 through 30 ties to 12.1 where Jesus is promising unbelievable rest. And they're already arguing about Sabbath rest. But as we're going into our time and ending today, the invitation has been extended. And I, I think this is pretty helpful for all of us. Most of you, if you're a believer, have understood this first part of come. You understood that once saved, you're always saved. You know that nothing separates you from the love of Christ. But how many of you are into this second where you're literally taking Jesus's yoke upon yourself Entering into discipleship, active obedience to the things of Christ, where he is, I'm going to learn from him and I'm going to learn of him. I think that that's the the reason why my friend called me yesterday is because he, he never heard that. He didn't think about that. That's not what's going on in his life. And if you're struggling, perhaps that's what's going on for you. You've been invited to know Jesus and know forgiveness but haven't ever decided to follow him as a disciple. Learn from him, learn of him, make him everything in your life. So let's be clear here. As we're looking at 20 through 24, the chief sin to those unrepentant cities was not sexual in nature. It wasn't drug related or it wasn't how they spoke. The chief sin was unbelief. They saw mighty works. They were indifferent. They remained unbelieving. They would not repent and believe. We have seen great and mighty works of God today. And my prayer is that we would not remain like them. Or if you have repented, that we would continually find ourselves ongoing um, in this pursuit of discipleship. Christ, however, bids for us right there in 28 through 30 in this amazing gospel invitation to come now to him and receive forgiveness and to take his yoke to become his disciple. Spurgeon, who's amazing, says this as he's kind of closing in on this. He says, oh, for grace to be always coming to Jesus and to be constantly inviting others to do the same. Always free, yet always bearing his yoke. We've come, we've been set free from sin, but now we're always bearing his yoke in that we're always pursuing discipleship with him, obeying what he says, always having the rest once given, yet always finding more rest. 
This is the experience of those who come to Jesus always and for everything. Blessed heritage. And it's ours. So as we close today, this is how I want for us to think through our response. Perhaps you've come to Christ in verse 28 and received this this once for all time declaration of innocence. You've been forgiven, but it's so hard for you to really be a disciple. And Jesus is extending this saying, yes, you come, but also learn from me and learn of me. Enter into the school of discipleship and obey. And this this is not a burdensome task because I'm gentle and I'm lowly. And whenever you enter into this school, it's not heavy. It's not a burden. As a matter of fact, it's where you find rest, the opposite of those things. Because you've already been declared righteous. And so maybe some of you need to hear that. Perhaps right now you need to think and pray. And I just invite you to read through this some more. Consider maybe some of the mighty works you've seen. And maybe you need to repent because you haven't um, been amazed by those mighty works. And then been aware, been made aware of your sin and followed Christ wholeheartedly. Maybe you've developed somewhat of a heart of the cities around you, the people around you who've seen mighty works in your family, your friends, but you're not actively sharing the gospel. Let's have the compassion that Jesus wants us to have for them. And then perhaps, lastly, this great gospel invitation of come and take. It's kind of half-heartedly followed. Maybe it's wholeheartedly followed and things are great. And if that's the case, I want you to just stand and worship Jesus with everything you have because you have been forgiven and you are enjoying learning of him and learning from him. And Jesus is your all in all. But if he's not, ask him to be. Don't just have the come part of this great gospel invitation. Have the take as well. Active obedience and discipleship. And when you do, you find rest and it's easy and the burden is light. That's an amazing promise. Discipleship is easy and the burden is light and it's where you find rest. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word and I pray that it's been helpful for us all. I pray that you would use it to stir our hearts and our affections for Christ. I pray that as we hear this gospel invitation of come, that we would, if there's anybody here that doesn't know Jesus, that they would come to him today, trust in him, put their faith in him for the forgiveness of their sin, believe in his work on the cross, believe in his resurrection and be forgiven for their sin and find final decisive rest for all eternity, that they would do that today. And the weight of all that sin would be taken off of them. But then secondly, Father, I pray for us all that the yoke of you that's light and easy where we learn from you and you are the gospel. You are the good news that we get more of Jesus. That reality and truth would dive deep into our souls and it would ignite an unbelievable passion to know you. It's not burdensome to pursue discipleship. It's restful.
And if we find it burdensome, Lord, help us see that it's not. But it's restful to pursue discipleship and obedience to Jesus. Be with us now as we worship, Lord. Would you please come now in mighty power, Holy Spirit, and ignite us as we worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.